When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Spring is about to spring in. One day away from the 21st of March where the seasons change it. Things stay the same for the Vancouver Canucks. Playoffs are not going to be upon us, but this team is certainly making it interesting, Harmondale, with 13 games to go. The Vancouver Canucks in the month of March are 7-2. They've won 7 of their last 8, 10-3-1 in their last 14 games. And, you know, when we looked at the standings at one point, and we'll start there before we get into the games. When we looked at the standings a while back, you and I kind of agreed that the Canucks' window was going to be somewhere between 24 and 27. They weren't really going to rise above that. There was no chance they were going to fall below that. Well, look, they're not going to fall below that, but... Right now, they're sitting in 24th spot, a tie for 24th with the St. Louis Blues. Each team has identical numbers across the board. 46 winning percentage through 69 games, 67 points, 31, 33, and 5. And they're just two points away from catching Detroit, four points away from catching Ottawa, five points away from Buffalo, and six points away from Washington, which is in 20th. That's not good harm. Yeah, I really hope that the Canucks don't end up in a spot where they finish outside of the top 10, right? That would that would suck if after going through the start that we did here, all of um all of the disappointment that they don't even get to pick uh top 10, that uh that would definitely sting, but it's hard to um it, it, it's hard to sort of poke holes at at the process at which they've gotten to this point in terms of the schedules lined up really well. You have the coaching bump working Patterson Hughes and and Demko are all playing at an elite level, especially Demko getting back to form. So it's like on paper, I think when you looked at this team in the first half of the season under Boudreaux for as poorly as they played, they were, they were never that bad as a true talent team. I, I always believed that they were sort of somewhere around the playoff fringes in terms of whether they were uh, in terms of their true talent level as uh, as a roster, right? When you have guys sort of playing at uh, at their appropriate level, when the goaltending isn't an absolute disaster, when uh, when your top guys are sort of going, that's where I sort of saw them. So I think to a certain extent, especially with the schedule softening, we we should have. We should have expected that the Canucks would sort of maybe have have a run. I just didn't expect it to be this dramatic. 
Uh, and, um, and yeah, I, I really hope that they don't, uh, end up in a situation here where they continue on this tear and, uh, and end up, um, out of, um, out of a top 10 pick. Yeah. Best case for Vancouver is they're, they're two points ahead of Arizona. Arizona sitting in 26. They played one more game than the Canucks. And normally when you're trying to chase playing one more game is bad, but in this case, having played the game is good. Uh, they're not catching Philadelphia 27th or five points away from Philadelphia right now. So it, it could get in outside of the top 10. I mean, that that is a real possibility the way this team is going right now and with what their schedule looks like going forward. Now, as far as the trip that we just had, the Canucks go 2-1 and one on this quick road trip, probably not necessarily indicative of their form when you look at Saturday night's game against Los Angeles because they got outplayed badly for big stretches of that game. Certainly the shots would, would indicate that, even if the scoring chances might have been a little bit closer. But uh, it was probably the first game, as good as Demko has played, the form in front of him has been good. Is this the first game a team got completely Demko'd? Ooh, good question. I, I'd have to think about it. I'm, but no question in terms of that was a Demko'd sort of performance. It is interesting to sort of look at, um, look at sort of. I, I was watching the first period, and after the first twenty minutes, I actually thought to myself, "Look, the Canucks were outplayed," but I didn't sort of hate that period, and I'll tell you why. There are going to be games where, look, it's impossible to win every period. You're never going to win every sort of twenty minute stretch. And for once, I sort of looked at that first period and went, okay, this is clearly a period where they're losing, right? They're getting dominated in terms of possession, uh, in terms of shots. But for once, it looked like this team wasn't collapsing despite being overwhelmed, if that sort of makes sense. It was like, I'm seeing a team that's bending right now instead of breaking. Um, In terms of the Canucks always had numbers back. They weren't allowing a lot off the rush. Um, there weren't any uh, crossing passes that they were allowing in terms of those backdoor goals where a goalie has no chance on. The Kings had lots of control, but it felt like they were unable to get quite in on the uh, on the inside. The Canucks seemed to have bodies and sticks in the right lanes. The problem was that after, there was no response in the second or third period, right? Yeah. And, and that's where it, things really started to to fall apart for this team. And I think this is an example where it sort of highlights how one of this team's sort of question marks or, or concerns or, or one of the areas that they probably still need to address is, is getting faster, right? Teams that teams like LA that are really fast and ferocious on the forecheck still sort of hound them in and give them trouble, right? We saw it even against uh, Seattle in one of uh, Talkett's earlier games where the, where the Kraken, like that's their identity as well in terms of just being this fast team that wants to get in get in on the forecheck and just uh take away all the time and space uh space from you that's what the kings are right they're they, they have this um forward group that doesn't necessarily have a lot of game breakers beyond kevin fiala who wasn't even playing but they have players who just play this fundamentally sound style they're athletic they win battles they're fast closing on pucks um, they kind of have that Carolina identity where they come at you it, it come at you in waves trying to hunt the puck down. And it was a sort of situation where I'd watch the Canucks in the defensive zone and look, their forwards are actually coming back to try and help the defenseman on these breakouts. The problem is the defenders didn't even have a chance to make make a play before the Kings were uh, 
we're already um, on top of them. And that to me sort of highlights how, for instance, one of the areas that I've been looking at is, wow, they've improved in this area under Talkit overall is they've gotten better at supporting the puck on the breakout. But I think watching them against the Kings was a reminder that it takes more than just the players putting that effort in. Like it's it's not necessarily going to be uh, a quick immediate fix because in in the, let's say you look at the Stars game right, especially in that third period when they were trying to defend the team, it's like they had such good quality short support where it's like they had they had a teammate always available within five feet. It was like bang bang bang, able to break it out with ease, beat Dallas's forecheck. But the difference there was that Dallas was, I think, playing their third game in four nights and. So they were like half a step behind it in closing. And so it's like in that sort of situation, especially in a third period, they just didn't have quite the same level of legs that a team like LA does. And you can see the difference where when an opposing team has an average or slightly below average four check, when you do have that quality support under Talkit now, it's like it works exceptionally well. But against a faster team, you still sometimes run into those issues where you, where it's not just about guys being in close proximity positionally. You you still need wingers who can win ball wall battles. You still need centers who can come deep and make quick plays under pressure. You still need mobile, agile defenders who can who have uh, a quick first three strides to be able to beat that um, aggressive forechecking pressure. And so that's where even against Arizona, for example, the Coyotes lack talent, but that's a team that is so hardworking. That's really how they've been better than expected in the standing so far. I, I watched them and again, it was the same sort of thing where I'm watching their work on the breakout and the effort is there. It's it's there in a way that it wasn't in Boudreaux in terms of how much the centers and wingers are trying to help the defensemen, but the execution was still off in that you know, passes were going off skates and pucks were hopping, hopping over sticks and the Coyotes actually seemed like they made an adjustment. Uh, I don't know if they watched um, how the Canucks were beating Dallas's forecheck, but the Canucks continually just tried to feed the guy in the it, feed the guy in the middle and split Dallas's forecheck. The Coyotes actually made an adjustment to try and take away that center pocket, and the Canucks seemed to struggle to adapt to that. Um, so it, it, it's just a reminder that yes, the Canucks have improved a lot in a lot of areas under Rick Tockett, um, but. You know, it'll be interesting to see whether they can sort of s- sustain that next year against uh, uh, against high quality opponents like the Kings. And before we leave the Kings, I do want to talk a bit about uh, Quentin Byfield and just what we're seeing from him because you know a lot of when we project out what the Canucks are going to look like, we also need to project the other teams out in the Pacific Division, right? And I think more was expected from Anaheim. LA is kind of living up to its expectations, and they they're going to be tough for a while here. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because. With um with Byfield, he's obviously drafted second overall in the 2020 draft, I believe, was expected to sort of be this uh, player with a franchise center potential. Struggled out of the gate initially, and you thought, okay, that's good news for the Canucks because uh, the Kings, again, they're the sort of team that plays a fundamentally sound style. It's just that they've always lacked a game breaker. That's obviously why they went out and, and acquired Fiala, so they got one of them. And... As Canucks, as if you're a Canucks fan, you're just hoping that some of these other LA prospects don't quite hit as um, as as players that can be be those elite high end guys, right? Be be the sorts of players that can 
challenge uh, Pedersen and Hughes in terms of just how good they are uh, at their position. Now, Byfield's obviously still got a lot, a, a lot of ways uh, before he gets anywhere close to there. But he, but he's picked up like watching him against the Canucks playing on the wing alongside Kopitar. He looked dangerous dancing in off the rush. He looked really dynamic. And so I, I was also doing an exercise for a national piece looking at uh, how teams' is very, various first lines have performed. And Byfield's picked up 15 points in, the last 20, in his last 26 games. And when you look at the numbers of, of Byfield on that top line with Kopitar on the wing, they've dominated 57% share of, of shot attempts. And They've outscored opponents 25 to 11. He's he's been able to at least recently elevate that top line to an elite, elite level. So if you're a Canucks fan, you're hoping that this is just a blip in the radar, that he doesn't actually find this uh, this traction because if he can take another sort of step forward, what that'll do for the Kings is then all of a sudden you can afford to have Kevin Fiala as a game breaker on your second line, which I think would totally change the complexion of uh, of that LA team. So uh, you're hoping, as, especially as we have this conversation in terms of how the Pacific Division looks for next season and in the years beyond, as the Canucks try and execute this um, expedited retool. Hopefully, LA doesn't have doesn't have Byfield sort of take uh, take this next step because again, he still is only 20 years old. So. Um, he's uh, he's got this potential, and when you look at even Alex Turcott, right? He was a top five pick. Doesn't seem like he's going to pan out into that sort of uh, player and give them uh, a succession plan for Kopitar, who's uh, who's thirty five. That's going to be, a, I, I think, a really interesting storyline to uh, keep an eye on in the Pacific Division moving forward, and it's going to have a significant impact on just what um, what level, what gear, what ceiling the Kings are able to reach as a team. Meanwhile, Anaheim, again, we expected a bit more from this team given what they'd uh, collected as far as their prospect pool is concerned. Certainly hasn't turned out for them. Uh, and we, we didn't think they were going to jump into the mix immediately, but certainly a, a better season than they're currently having. And they might not get all the way down there into Columbus territory as far as the first overall pick, but they're currently in the top five and they're very likely going to stay there. And they did not look good against the Canucks at all. You know, we look around the division and, you know, you see Calgary taking their step back this year, uh, four points behind Winnipeg for the last playoff spot in the West, even though they've got a game in hand on the Jets. But, you know, you you can tell there's just a lack of game breakers there offensively. Things haven't gone well with Markstrom. But let's let's focus on Anaheim a little bit and why things are not where they should be, where many of us expected to be for them. Yeah, it's again, in terms of the Canucks' competition, there was a point, I believe, in mid to late January of last season when the Ducks were second in the Pacific Division and it seemed like they were playoff locks, potentially. And then they obviously just completely fell apart down the stretch. That's huge because, again, at that point, midway through last season, it felt like, okay, they were right there with LA in terms of the future is now in terms of some of these California teams. And now you're looking at their future, at least in the short term, and it's potentially a lot more bleak. I mean, I was watching that, that, that you know, the Ducks team and seeing them these three times against the Canucks. It, it's as if they have no, uh, it's, a, it's as if they have no soul, right? It's, you know, that Ducks team plays as if they're clocking in just to clock out. Uh, it's, it's amazing even watching somebody like Trevor Zegers, who has that level of dynamic skill. I mean, the most noticeable he was in that game was when he uh, went after Dakota Joshua, after Joshua sort of bumped into uh, 
I believe it was Terry away from the play in the neutral zone. It's just there's not a whole lot, um, whole lot there, and so that's going to be, um, you know, for for me looking at the Ducks, them being behind schedule that helps Canucks a lot because they're looking to take advantage in the next couple of uh, seasons. Obviously, in terms of watching their big picture, how their rebuild is is going. Obviously, the the one component that they can use at any given point to try and accelerate is is cap space, right? They, I think they will enter this summer with around forty million in room. They're going to have to work hard just to hit the cap floor. But what this Ducks team lacks that the Kings have, for example, the the reason why the Kings have been able to take a step and are legitimate competition for the Canucks next season in terms of a playoff spot, whereas the Ducks probably aren't. Is that while the prospects take a time take time to sort of mature and, and and develop, the Kings have had a lot of vets providing high end value, right? You look at the Kings; they have Kopitar, they have Deneau, they still have Drew Doughty. That's your number one center. That's your number two center. That's your number one defenseman, right? All all in terms of these veteran um, players. You also have contributors like Adrian Kempe, Victor Arvidsson, um, Alex Ayafalo, whereas the Ducks, they don't, you know, get staff is gone. They don't have that infrastructure in terms of top six centermen. Um, they don't have that infrastructure outside of Cam Fowler in terms of veteran defensemen. So it's like these young kids are are kind of thrown to the wolves. And you you even look at, for example, Zegers hasn't quite taken the next step. And so as you look at the next couple of years, we'll see if one of Zegris or McTavish can develop into superstar. Because if not, that's that's a huge hole that that uh, that they still have relative to a, a team like uh, Vancouver is having uh, that level of player who can notch 80, 90, 100 points in a season the way, for example, Elias Pettersson is on pace for. Um, you know, it's interesting because on the back end they have they have I think the arguably the best prospect pool on defense in the NHL. I think all three of their the all three of their defense prospects lead each one of the CHL leagues in, in points from defensemen. But um plus they have Jamie Drysdale who's another sort of top ten pick um who's supposed to um who who played his rookie year last season and had a season ending injury this year who should be entering the fray. So we'll see how quickly the back end improves. But man, that um you know that that team looked really, really rough the the other night. Yeah, there's no doubt they did. Um, a couple of guys who don't look rough at all, really three, and that's the Canucks' big three. You need your best players to play your best. They haven't always done that throughout this season, but man, oh man, are Elias Pettersson, JT Miller, and Quinn Hughes just getting better and better by the minute? We'll talk about it when we return. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24/7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Barn, before we get into the big three, let's go back to the Ducks game really quick and talk a bit about coaching and just some of the adjustments. You know, we, we've spent so much time talking about structure and, you know, that word gets overused. Sometimes I don't even know if we kind of know how we're using it. Yeah, we see the puck support and the breakouts and short passes and some of those plays down below and, you know, and talk it talks about, you know, everybody getting back and tracking and things like that. But there's also some in-game adjustments that the head coach has been making that seem to be winning. Yeah, so I saw an intelligent sort of adjustment for talk it. it I don't even know if it was necessarily an adjustment because it, it happened um, right from the start uh, of the first period. I guess you could call it more of a more of a game plan, but he sent two forwards deep in on the forecheck against that Ducks team. And I couldn't help but notice in that first period how many times that work worked because the Canucks don't usually send two guys aggressively deep to hunt the pocket, sort of take that DDD pass away. It was like watching, you know, sometimes when you, when you play the, um, I haven't played the EA NHL video games in a while, but I remember back in the day, you'd play them and you'd find the one play that would work way too well. And then your entire strategy was just revolving around spamming that one play. It felt like that watching the Canucks um, on the forecheck against the Ducks in in the first period, because there were at least three, four, five occasions where they'd send those two forecheckers deep so the Ducks wouldn't have the DDD pass. And then they'd go... They'd send the puck to the boards, and then that's where the uh, the where the Canucks is F three or uh, defenseman would pinch, and and they'd win the puck right along the boards, right? So it happened time and time and time again, and that's why the Canucks were able to sort of dominate zone time in that first period, and that was important, setting the tone, right? Because as we look for sort of trends in terms of what matters heading into next season, you look at that Ducks game. It was the second half of a back-to-back. You know that in a game like that, you're not going to have your legs for the entire game. It's really important for the Canucks to have come out of the gate strong and build an early lead. Because, man, if you're chasing a game in, in the final half of it, especially in the third period, that's that's right around the time where you just sort of run out of uh, gas as a team. So seeing Talkit look at the Ducks, essentially go... I look at that defense, I look at that team, and I'm I'm skeptical about their ability to break the puck out. And so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be really aggressive and we're gonna try and take advantage of that. That was, I think, really impressive because again, you're gonna have situations like that um over the course of next season where you're gonna have where you're going to be tired as a team and you're going to want to just lean on one adjustment to exploit a team not have to exert a lot of effort. And we saw the way that the Canucks beat the Ducks, right? They weren't trading chances necessarily off the rush. This wasn't a high event game. It was a game where they sort of, they really dominated and controlled possession, but it was it was in more of a sort of boring um, style where they didn't have to expend a lot of energy and they were able to lean on the fact that, okay, we've got these elite one-shot scorers in Pedersen and Miller like that's that's the sort of game where where you've got to win without expending a lot. You've got to win without breaking a sweat. And uh, I felt that that adjustment uh, on the forecheck in the first period really set the tone for that. Where what was it? The shots were like twenty one four 
after um, after the first period. It, it helped them land on the power play, which gave them the early lead. That was a sort of um, move where I I, I think I, we we've seen it from Talkit against the Senators recently as well, um, and that uh, and that helped help the Canucks um, win that game. So you know I, I like seeing that level of. Um, looking at your opponent and picking apart exactly how you can take advantage of them and uh, beat up on them. So let's change gears really quickly and talk a bit about the Canucks big three and just their performance right now. And I want to talk about Quinn Hughes specifically, because when you look at the amount of minutes this guy plays, and I'm used to seeing him kind of every day climb the list of Canuck defensemen in various categories. And quite often it's, it's a sad reflection on just the lack of elite defensemen. This, organization has had over the years, right? I mean, they just haven't had a guy like Quinn Hughes, but now we've continuously seen him do things that some of the best defensemen ever to play the game haven't done, right? And we've talked about his assist through, um, you know, the currently where he's at in his career. We've talked about fastest to 200, you know, all of those types of things. The latest one is playing in his 270th game uh, against Anaheim on Sunday. Quinn Hughes recorded two assists. This is on StatCenter from TSN. For the 44th time in his career, through that many contests played, his total of multi-assist performances ranks tied behind only three blue liners. So Bobby Orr, 47 assists. Paul Reinhardt, 46 assists. Dennis Potvin, 45. Quinn Hughes tied with Mark Howe at 44, ahead of names like Brian Leach and Paul Coffey. You know, and we've also talked before about Hughes' game relative to where it was his first season and how... He just looked a little more spectacular. But I almost think we underrate what this guy does night in and night out because he just continuously piles up assists. He's fifth in the league right now, sitting at 60 assists, a second among defensemen, only behind Eric Carlson. Like, you know, at what point do we start talking about Quinn Hughes? And I know it's not going to happen this year because of how bad the team is, but this guy's got to get into the first all-star team discussion pretty quick, does he not? Yeah, or at least in the top five in terms of uh, the Norris conversation, because of the slow start he had in the first four to six weeks. When, if you remember that uh, that first month where it seemed like he was playing through um, playing through something, uh, didn't quite look like himself, was still logging an exorbitant number of minutes. I think that sort of set him back because if you just look at his body of work from say mid November on. I truly believe he would be in that conversation when you look at just how dominant he's been at uh, at both ends of the ice, especially considering that he hasn't had a high-end uh, defense partner really since um, Chris Tanev has, uh, has departed, which I think is the most impressive part um, in all of this. Watching him play, it just seems like there's a different level of also just determination when he has the puck on his stick in the offensive zone where, you know, sometimes in the NBA, for example, guys demand the ball. It's like, I want to I, I go and I want to make something special happen. You, you're, you're starting to see that from Hughes sometimes, where it's like the puck will be in the offensive zone and I'll see him just slamming his stick, just like really wanting the puck because he knows that he can walk the line. And the way that he's sort of thinking of plays in his head, it's not just the spectacular skating ability. Right, because he's always had that part of about him, that elusiveness, how he walks the line, how he can jet in and out of tight spaces. But 
you're also seeing his brain operate at, operate at such a high-end level where he's thinking multiple moves in, instead where it's like, okay, if I walk across the line and then pivot this way, do a button hook, then I can probably try and hit a teammate on the back door, right? It's like he's thinking about that backdoor play before he even starts walking the line. And you'll see it sometimes where it's like some of his teammates aren't quite like, they're still taking time to sort of understand how to... um how to read off of him, especially when it's the bottom six line mates, because obviously when it comes to somebody like Elias Pettersson, he's um, he's used to sort of thinking the game the same way as uh, as he used. But sometimes you'll see the other sort of bottom six players, and it's like they're not quite in the right position um, in terms of where Hughes would would want them after he makes all those moves. And it's hard to blame the um, the forward sometimes because they're just they're just not sort of thinking at that uh, same level. The other sort of part where I think he's really evolved this season and, and having spoken to a lot of players um, on the team is he's become more decisive as um, as a leader, even in terms of what he looks to do on the ice, right? For example, I remember chatting with uh, Luke Shen two or three months ago about Hughes's evolution. And he's like, Hughes as a rookie, when you would, or this is actually even technically before his rookie season. This is uh, towards the end of that 2018-19 season when he, when Hughes had just signed out of um, college. Shen said that when he and Hughes would play together, that Hughes would kind of, he still had that confident play style, but he wouldn't really speak up in terms of how he was seeing the game, what he wanted Shen to do as his partner, how he wanted place to sort of be drawn up off an offense's own face off for example and, and he's like you could cl- and Chen was cl- was like you could clearly see that Hughes did sort of just as rookies often do didn't want to speak out of turn you know had this respect for the veterans and um it, it was a sort of case where it's like he wasn't quite taking over in that sort of way yet which is understandable Shen sort of said now that they're playing together, it's like Hughes at the end of an intermission or something would sort of point out specific shifts, for example, in the offensive zone. And he's like, and he'd be like, in that situation where you had that shot there, instead of shooting there, hit me down there and I can do this play, blah, blah, blah. Or off a defensive zone draw, he'll sort of be drawing up a play where it's like, if you can make this play to me, I'll make this play to this winger and we'll break out this way. It's like he's he's starting to sort of lead in, in that sort of way on the ice as well, which I think is huge for this group because you're going to have this void now with not only Horvat gone, but over the past few seasons, this club has lost a lot of um, a lot of core pieces who are also leaders, right? In terms of uh, Chris Tanev, in terms of um, even to a lesser ex- to a lesser extent, somebody like Alex Edler, um, Brandon Sutter, a lot of these. Uh, Tyler Toffoli, a lot of these um, players who the young players would often lean on as um, as mentors, so guys to sort of lead the way. Now that onus and responsibility falls on Hughes and Pedersen, and that's why I'm I'm impressed not only by the production and just how Hughes and Pedersen and, and Demko, how these guys are starting to take games over, but how Hughes and Pedersen are also sort of embracing that, okay, we've got to be the guys on the team because that that's the only way this roster is going to evolve. It isn't just going to be a case of these guys put up their points and that's going to be enough. They need to lead in other ways. And, and we're seeing that in addition to uh, the elite performances. 
Yeah, no doubt. And Rick Tockett has talked about it, especially with a guy like Quinn Hughes. You know, we've, we're not used to necessarily hearing him on the ice. We can now hear him, like, literally from up in the press box, even with a full crowd. Like, he he is noticeably louder, noticeably um, more demonstrative, all of it. And I think that's good, right? And And when you look at the Canucks, their ability to control – possession and shots and, and scoring chances when he's on the ice, you know, it, it really is two different teams. So when you are playing that much, leadership's unavoidable. You know, it really is. And when you're when you're carrying that kind of load and having that level of production, um, that's just part of it. It's just the way it goes. And I think a couple of years ago, we saw Travis Green try to, you know, hand the team over to the room and give Hughes and Pedersen a little more in the way of leadership and ownership and those types of things. And they just weren't ready for it. They weren't mature enough. They, whether they felt they had enough cachet in the room, maybe their priorities were different. I don't know, but they simply weren't ready for it. And you had to go through Bruce Boudreau and get to Rick Talkett. And now they, and you know, and, and, and ultimately Bo Horvat departing. Um, and you know, you know me, you know how I feel about Bo. I don't think he tried to get in the way of anyone's leadership development, but sometimes it just happens that when that person is there, everyone's just going to default to him. They're just going to turn to him. And they won't say as much because they expect it to come from somebody else. So um, th- that's just was was going to be inevitable, right? Once they moved on from Bo, others were going to have to step in. And either the right people stepped in or the wrong people stepped in. And clearly the right people are getting an opportunity to do that and are taking full advantage of it. And when you look at Pedersen and, and just his ability to, to produce at such a high level, both he and Miller are so dialed in. Both goals in that first period were complete snipes. Uh, you look at where Pedersen sits right now. Uh, through 67 games, sitting at 88 points, tied for seventh with Jason Robertson of Dallas uh, in uh, in scoring. Uh, actually, ahead of him when you when you base it on on games played, because Pedersen has played three fewer games, but he's he's scored uh, he scored fewer goals. But just what he's able to do at both ends of the ice right now, and just the confidence with which he is shooting the puck earlier in the year when he wasn't producing necessarily on the power play, he wasn't necessarily as confident with the shot, taking the shot, being as accurate with the shot. You know, I, I've kind of pointed to a, the NHL All-Star break, you know, when he won the hardest shot competition. Not that all of a sudden his shot became better, but it just seemed that he became a little more aggressive with his shot once he came back after the All-Star break. And... He is just lethal right now. And JT Miller's not that far behind. Yeah. With Pedersen and Hughes, and and you're sort of speaking about sort of these guys maturing, taking the next step, understanding the onus and responsibility. That's where I, I think I mentioned this on the podcast in, in preseason, if anybody still still remembers, but around oh, yeah, that I remember time, that one. Yeah, that was episode <laughs> yeah. like Yeah, yeah definitely. We remember exactly what it was. Um but no, in all seriousness, I, I remember hearing from people close to those guys that they were so dialed in in a way where they just hadn't seen it from those guys before. And it was coming down to things like like lifestyle choices and and just even o- away from the rink, trying to be as dialed in as possible, where it's like they were obsessed with trying to take this um, next uh, next step in, in their game and I, I think they really felt it was it, it was time, and that you know the onus and responsibility was on them. And, and when you look at Patterson, his um, his performance this season, and, and how he's led to that um, that top line, I've uh, just been doing an exercise recently. The article will will come out tomorrow, looking at um, the uh, best and, and worst first lines in the NHL. Patterson and Vancouver's top line ranks fourth in the NHL in terms of 
goal in terms of their goals for share behind only Toronto, Colorado, and Buffalo. Wow. So that shows you the level of of dominance that we've seen from Pedersen, plus obviously Kuzmenko meshing in really well. But with that sort of advantage, right? And when when you looked at the overall goal differential after accounting for the goals against, the Canucks with with Pedersen on the ice are in a spot where the only non-playoff teams that have had a more, a more productive first line than them are Buffalo and Florida, and they're they're only marginally better than uh, than than the Canucks in um, in goal differential. So I think that right there, especially when you couple it with how well Hughes has played, with what the Canucks have in Thatcher Demko, that right there is the biggest reason to have at least some level of optimism that maybe that that this retool that the organization has chosen can work because the Canucks have this foundation in place and look, there's probably middle ground between a retool where you're trying to make the playoffs next season and a complete tear it down five-year rebuild that probably made most sense, but fine. This is the path that they've chosen for them to sort of excel on this. They have this building block and you sort of noted the stark difference in in, in how well the team plays when Hughes is on the ice versus when they're off. And now in this case, how well the Canucks play when Pedersen and that first line is on the ice versus when they're off. At least they sort of have that foundation in place. And it means that you only hopefully need to get to a baseline level of competency when those guys are off the ice for you to become a sort of decent, um, a decent hockey team. And especially uh, a good one, um, in years beyond just next season moving forward, because you look at a lot of teams at the bottom of the standings, right? And this is, again, the strongest argument, I think, in, in favor of the direction that they've chosen. You look at these other sort of rebuilding teams, they don't have their sort of Pedersen, Hughes, and Demko, right? Like you look at Chicago, they're essentially starting from uh, scratch. Anaheim, they have some intriguing pieces, but, you know, Zegers definitely isn't no Pedersen. They don't have their uh, Quinn Hughes yet. Uh, you look at Columbus, same sort of thing, where they have some some intriguing pieces, but they're they just don't have that level of star. Same thing with Philadelphia. Um, same thing with Montreal. Despite how well Suzuki and Caulfield have played, they're still not Pedersen and Hughes. Arizona obviously doesn't have that. Even another team that um that seems to be choosing a retool was aggressive at the deadline and selling. St. Louis, they're building around Thomas and in Cairo. They they just that's not the same as, as what the Canucks have. Uh, Nashville, obviously, is going to, going to be re- probably rebuilding now with Barry Trotz taking over as, uh, as general manager in the offseason, being aggressive sellers. They obviously don't quite have that level of in- infrastructure. Of course, they have Yossi, right? But um, he's obviously much older. Saros is, is older as, as well, not quite as old as Yossi, but they're starting from a much different spot. Even when you look at the Red Wings, right? They have Cider as that sort of building block number one defenseman. So it's like, okay, you got that one piece checked off. But up front, they don't they don't have that level of, of game breaker that Pedersen sort of gives them. And that's where I was looking at, for example, Detroit in this exact same exercise. And obviously part of it was because Larkin basically ha- has had no help on his wings. But Detroit's top line sort of was bottom five in terms of goal differential. And I think that goes to show where as... 
you know, Detroit is looking to take the next step forward, they still have this gap in in having that elite difference makers uh, offensively that they have to make up. And I think that's where that's at least something the Canucks have. And, you know, there is validity to this, um, to the, to this notion potentially that, um, if we have these guys, we sort of have to try and and take advantage and, and sort of build something around those three while we still have them. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to get into the, what the, the D currently looks like with Ethan Bear's return. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So, Harm, let's take a look at what this blue line looks like because all of a sudden the Canucks have a plethora of right-handed defensemen. Vancouver actually dressed four right-handed D. Tyler Myers missed the game on Saturday, played the game on Sunday. Apparently, he was just ill on Saturday. For all those who don't like the chaos, Giraffe and thought he'd finally been benched. Not the case. And Ethan Bear, of course, made it back on this trip. So the two of them played together both as right-handed defensemen while Noah Juleson stayed uh, with Quinn Hughes. And we saw uh, Burroughs on the fourth pair, or on the third pair, I should say, with Christian Wallanen. So all of a sudden, four out there, a little bit of flexibility for this team on the back end for a change. Yeah, actually, first I want to hear your take on what you've um, made of it recently, because I feel like I've been talking way too much. I, I feel like you've barely had a chance to speak, and I uh, It's, it's I like the Drancer shows. It's like the Drancer shows. Yeah, I, uh, I, I want to hear your opinion. Well, tr- truthfully, I, I actually like what I'm seeing from Tyler Myers in this last game playing with Ethan Bear. And I know that, that uh, the broadcast talked about Ethan Bears having a bit of a stabilizing influence and just being able to make simple plays, being able to angle off wingers and and just not getting himself into trouble and just the way he's been able to, to control things on the back end, especially um, in transition, right? Uh, when teams are trying to break out and, and make plays off the rush, he's been able to, to mitigate that really quickly. So, him coming back, you know, it took a big shot uh, off. It looked like the thigh. It looked like where the where the pad wasn't because he had turned off to the side. So just when he comes back, you know, taking it again, I, I thought he looked pretty good. But look, you know me defensively. I like what I'm seeing from these AHL guys. And and I liked Christian Wallan in the preseason. Uh, I think Noah Juleson has been a revelation to me. Uh, and um, you know, just what they're doing defensively right now, I've always wanted to see Kyle Burroughs get more playing time. And look, at the end of the day, these guys are all players who should be somewhere between five and seven or five and eight on your blue line, right? I don't anticipate or expect that any of these guys are going to be a top four defenseman. But when you've got those guys that can not only play, you know, in a, in a bottom pair in a depth role, but all of a sudden at certain points in time when you need to elevate them, right? I mean, wouldn't it have been easy for Rick Tockett to just take Ethan Bear and put him back out there with Quinn Hughes? Right, just a guy that's got legitimate NHL experience, but no, he's been comfortable with what Juleson has done alongside of Hughes. And Hughes or Juleson in Abbotsford, my understanding is he plays a bit of a different role because he's expected to have the puck more on any pair that he's on, as opposed to what he's doing with Quinn Hughes. But I think Hughes has looked as good as he has at any point this season playing alongside this kid from the American League. Right. So I've I've just been so impressed with what I've seen from from the back end. And, you know, I, I, I didn't mind 
Tyler Myers playing on the left side because that's where he was most of the game last night. Yeah, so two things. First of all, I, I think as as you being president of the Christian Wallanian fan club. Hell yeah. From preseason. I'll admit it. I'm there. I'm that guy. That That's your best take, I think, on the pod all year. Stumping for him in preseason. Can you imagine if the Canucks had this guy for the first uh, half of the year? And again, we're, we're only talking about a guy who is, you know, a, a, probably a six on um, sure. on most NHL teams. But still, it's that it, it's small plays, such as when he's behind the net. And he just has that first couple strides. Uh, where actually his skating ability has been better than I initially sort of pegged it at, where he, he can separate from four checkers and he can make that simple poise pass, right? It's it's never really a home run play, but he can take those first few strides out of danger when somebody's hounding him on the four check. And if he has support near him, he'll make that simple play. If he doesn't, he'll just be able to flip it out. Like that's huge because so many times with Oliver Ekman Larson earlier in the season, O'Neill didn't even have the chance to make a play because he he's so slow that that the that the four checker would just like pin him against the wall or win that battle initially. So that I think even just that level of of mobility that he's added, that level of poise with the puck, right? He actually surveys his options, tends to make smart decisions with, with the puck. I think that sort of subtle difference has made um, has made a huge impact. And out of all the HL guys, right? Out of Juleson, uh out uh, out of um, Breezebaugh, him even compared to Kyle Burrows, Willanen I think has shot up to 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 being sort of my favorite in terms of a guy who can hopefully contribute and join and the help party, buddy. Join capacity. the group. Join the club. There's T-shirts and everything. Yeah, you hundred percent your best take of because hey, um, when we when I first brought it up, like not in the preseason, but. Maybe three weeks ago, you're looking at me like, "What are we talking about, Christian Olanen for?" It's like seventh or eighth D. Like, what are we talking about here? But here's here's the thing for me is I think all we've wanted from OEL is replacement level play, right? And you know whether Christian Olanen is is at replacement level or slightly above, like he's giving this team more than what OEL did, and that's the hard part. And you don't want to just shit on OEL over and over and over because it's been a difficult season for him. Clearly he was dealing with something earlier. Uh, he, you know, I saw him in a walking boot the other day. It doesn't look like he's going to come back into the lineup anytime soon. You know, even though we expect to see him, if all of a sudden he's shut down for the rest of the year, don't color me shocked. But all we've wanted is replacement level play. Just make the simple play and, you know, be able to turn your feet and move when someone tries to beat you to the outside or, and, and that's what we're seeing from these guys that are, that are, in the lineup right now. And, and it's just fine. Right. When, you know, you said it before that if your Quinn Hughes pair can give you exceptional play and your top line can give you exceptional play, if the rest of your team just plays ordinary, you're going to be okay. But you're, you can't hemorrhage with everybody else in your lineup. And that's what they were doing earlier. And they've just given them Wallanen and these American League Hockey League defensemen have just been solid. That's all, right? Like, I'm not sitting here trying to say that this guy should be in next year's All-Star game. They've just been solid, which is more than what we've seen for the first four months of the season. And he's on a contract that guarantees him $750,000, right? So he's on, you know, the NHL minimum, but that's what he's making regardless of whether he's in the minors or not. So they haven't, we haven't heard much about any kind of contract discussions with him, right? We know that Juleson is close and Breezebaugh just got redone. I hope they find a way to bring this guy back, but I wonder if that's, 
going to be enough, right? Like if they're going to need to do a little bit more to get him back next year. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, at the end of the day, like I kind of said, I think when we broached the topic last time, he is the sort of player who, I mean, nobody's looking at the Canucks right now. Absolutely. He's going to be flying under the radar. And I think we'll see if, if teams perception has updated beyond just, Hey, he's a quad a guy. Sure. Because my guess is it probably hasn't, especially since generally speaking, teams don't, um, teams don't value a player's performance sort of for a team that is out of the playoff hunt when it's like March and April. Like they just don't view it with the same level of seriousness because they're like, Oh, like these games don't mean as much, whatever. So that should help the Canucks hopefully. And and hopefully he's in, enjoyed the fact that he's gotten uh, a shot and, and has been able to stick in. And for a while was even getting some time on, um, on the second unit, unit uh, power play. The other side of it too, in terms of why these defensemen have, uh, I think excelled is the LA game, notwithstanding, I think the infrastructure around them with how much help the forwards are, are providing has been huge. Like that to me is the biggest difference in what the Canucks have shown under talk. It is just in every phase of the game, whether it's breakouts, whether it's back checking, whether it's uh, simply down low defensive coverage, the effort level is, is miles better than where it was at under Boudreaux in the first, uh, first half of the season, which I think obviously like when we're talking about how much OEL and Myers have struggled, I think it is sort of fair to point out that Okay, the forwards were doing basically nothing to help help them. Whereas now with these AHL guys, they're doing their absolute best and have been really helpful from a two way perspective. That's that's important context, of course. And but still, yeah, I mean, it's been it's been great to see their impact, and we're even seeing sort of with with these guys. Like now, when you look at, for example, next season, Philip Pronick and, and Tyler Myers, I think are are the Canucks' only right-shot defenseman under contract for next season, you should have absolutely zero hesitation. Like last year, the conversation was at least, when we had this conversation about Myers' future, there was also an element of he was just coming off of last year where he had played really well in a, in a top-four role, playing matchup minutes alongside OEL, and we thought, okay, the cap hit's too high, he's not worth $6 million, but there aren't many free agent and trade options, and he's pretty decent at least as a stopgap in the top four uh, there's no point sort of looking at, at trading him right like you might as well just keep him for this season and um, especially as his trade value increases with the less term that is remaining on his contract like that's probably the way to go now we're seeing well if Anaheim is going to struggle to get to the floor we know a guy you could have yeah hopefully ho- hopefully um my, the only complication like is is the whole NT the the ten team trade list or whatever sure or or ten team no trade list, um but yeah I mean looking at the way Juleson ha- has played Burrows all these guys I'm looking at Myers and even the last few games you still see those mistakes here and there and and I don't want to crap all over him but it's like these HL guys can do what Myers is is doing no question yeah like you, you can't debate that and you know I think we've always felt that Myers would be better if he was in third pair minutes and third pair matchups but you know it. I, unless they, do you see a scenario where that happens, right? I mean, do you see a scenario where they get Barry signed and he's your first pair guy alongside of Hughes and Ronick on the second pair and Myers in the third pair, right? Like, do you, do you see that happening? Because even Bear probably is better um, getting a little bit more controlled matchups as well. But 
you know, can you can you live with them? Like what, at the end of the day, once you've paid the bonus, if you're not up against it cap wise next year, and we you know we know what this club would like to do this off season, but if if you're not up against it, I mean, I know that everyone feels that he's going to be that much easier to move once they pay that bonus. And, and certainly a team like Anaheim, who, as you mentioned, is going to struggle to the floor. You know, there may be an interest there. But at the end of the day, he could be f- just fine for this team in a third-pair role, could he not? He could. A legitimate third-pair role. Sure. I think um, the the problem, obviously, is is you're, you'd have to pay $6 million for it, right? And you'd much yeah, rather no, just be able to shed They're not going to move him before that bonus gets paid. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, he doesn't become valuable until that yes, bonus is paid. So you're going to pay five million of it for anyway. sure, for sure. So, like, I, I mean, the cap hit is is what sure. I is is what I mean. Like, if you can, if you can find a league um, sort of a replacement level value contributor in free agency, which I don't think would be hard given the level that they've Myers got him in the building. Season, yeah, like, like, why would you not just try and and shed that cap space, especially when you know, even if even if it's just, um. Even if it's just if it's just to sort of reallocate it elsewhere, which I think is really important yep. given that uh, given how much salary this team already has uh, committed for next season. Yeah, I know. Look, you're not wrong. At the end of the day, and I think we all knew that that this off season was the time to make that move if they're going to make it. So you know, if there's a trade in, uh, available for Tyler Myers, if there's it a buyout to available, try, in my opinion, yeah, you do. If there's a buyout available for OEL, like you, you, they've got guys like we said in the building that can play at a replacement level, that can do everything those guys did uh, at a much more palatable cap hit. So I, you know, they, they want to try to get Kyle Burroughs done. You would think you want to, you, you would think they want to get Will Annan done at this point and, and just to have some solid depth pieces that you can call on. And, and you know what these guys are all about, right? And, and Ronick, his arrival, if we, you know, 13 games left, are we going to see this guy? It seems as if, uh, based off, um, some of the videos circulating on Twitter that he's been working out, um, and, uh, while, while the team was on the road that he's been working out at a uh, Scotia barn, Doing some uh, some on ice drills based on the video looked at looked like it was uh, one of the Canucks' skill coaches that he uh, was uh, was working with. So hopefully, I mean, we haven't really gotten a lot of clarity, but I know that last time we got a got an update from Talkit that he seemed optimistic that we'd see him sooner rather than later. So yeah, I am still expecting him. Yeah, I wonder. I I just wonder if this quietly goes into the night and we wait until next year because obviously this is a guy that's got a track record. It's not like. You want to see what he can do. You know what he can do. You'd certainly like to see him firsthand, but I don't know. I wouldn't be shocked. And look, that's not like scoop stuff or anything like that. Just the way this is going and how slow it's gone to this point and how long we thought or how long it was originally projected that we might get him on the ice sooner than later. Um, wouldn't be shocked. I mean, you know, look, at the end of the day, if he plays the last week of the season, that's that's not a bad thing, but um I could also see, like you know, we thought OEL was going to be back before the end of the year. Now seeing him the other day, wouldn't be shocked if if this was the last we'd seen of him this year. And with the way these young guys are playing, or I shouldn't say young. I mean, Will Annan's twenty eight for the love of God. <laughs> uh, he's older than you by a lot, uh, mind you. Pretty much everybody still is. You know what's going to change for you when you get older than the players you cover? Oh, it's it's happened a little. Like Hoaglander's younger than me. No. I was like, damn it. Really, we're born the same year, but his birthday is um is in is much is uh is a few months later. So, yeah, wait till you see Connor Bedard in the building and say these kids today. (laughs) 
Hey, listen, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, we appreciate you joining us. The next time we're back on, it is going to be spring. Uh, Canucks have a couple of home games this week on Tuesday and Thursday. Also next Tuesday. So our VanCast is going to go this Monday and next Monday. Then next Tuesday on the 28th, following the Blues game, uh, Drencher and I are going to have a live room. So um, looking forward to that. I think we've only got two more live rooms this season. One more uh, in March, then one more in uh, the first half of April before the season wraps up. So Please join us there because we've had great response from the VanCast and all those live rooms, and we love doing them. But uh, as for uh, other pod options, Brianna Decker joins Craig Custance and Sean Gentili on the Athletic Hockey Show USA later on this week. You can also get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 per month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. You got anything else, Arm? Nope. We're going to see you at the rink this week? Yes, sir. And, and all right. Hronik, like that'll be the, that'll be a tell is if he practices this week. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And the Canucks are off on Monday, so we do expect them to have a skate on Tuesday uh, before the game and then a full practice on Wednesday. So curious to see if he gets back on the ice. Uh, you know, I want to see I want to see how he fits in with this group. Uh, and again, like, I mean, do I expect them to look that much better once he gets in? Sure, I do. But again, all of it is in the context of now down to the last Baker's dozen of games here and uh, and. Let's just hope they they don't fall out of the top 10 as far as draft picks are concerned, right? Yes, 100%. Oh, that that's another point. When the when the Canucks are uh, are playing the Blues next week, and I'll, and I'll obviously try and re- re- reiterate it, but that's a four-point game. They're they're like right there imagine? with you in the stand in the standings. Don't play Demko, right? Like I I get it like you want to play they're going to You want to ride Demko. Demko. But here's the thing, you can still ride Demko a lot just Make his scheduled, make a scheduled sort of game off that game, like at, like if you're at least if yeah, you're not going to have them a lot of game- game, they're they're going to have back to back games on the weekend, on Saturday Sunday. So he's going to get one of those two off. So I I don't see a scenario where they, I don't know maybe they'll surprise me, but that yeah, would be the right thing to do. Right. There's no doubt. What kind of a message does that send to Colin Delia, who actually you know looked decent? He didn't get a lot of work in the last game, but. Um, winning in his home state. What kind of message would that send? Yeah, we're playing St. Louis. We didn't play yesterday, but you're going to go in anyway. I don't. Well, see it. they can they can justify it if they really want to do. They could be like, oh, we want to see who um, we want to take a look at, which is legitimately an important question, by the way. Who's going to be the backup for next season? So it's like a showcase. Uh, see see exactly what we have in Delia. But yeah, you're right. Now that I see the back to back, damn it. They're going to go with Demko. Yeah, like they, they could play Delia against Dallas and St. Louis and just play Demko against Chicago, right? So he's not he plays the second end of the back-to-back instead of the first. Uh, you know, he'd have three days off after the San Jose game, or sorry, two days off before playing. You know, like, yeah, it, it, it makes sense, but I don't know. Optically, I just think they're not going there. But hey, I could be surprised. It'll give us something to talk about for that St. Louis game. Yeah, I hope. Um, I, I think you're right, and I hope we're wrong. All right. <laughs> Big four-pointer. Again, Canucks, they got Vegas on Tuesday, San Jose on Thursday at home, and then three more games on the road. We will be back next Monday. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thanks for logging on. We will see you next week.